turn to Romans chapter 5. If you need a Bible, there's one in the back of the chairs, underneath the chairs. About every third chair has a couple of Bibles there. Romans chapter 5, and we are continuing our, our walk through Romans that we began in January. And last week we said that Paul is writing here in chapter 5, continuing this, this dialogue, this argument to show the absolute assurance of God's love for sinners through Christ and, and the ongoing effects of this blessed assurance. And, and that idea of blessed assurance is still the, the undergirding truth here in, in verses 6 through 11. And, 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 but not only that, that assurance, but the effects on our lives, our, our status as children of God, saved, that, that overflows into our lives and affects how we live. Our assurance of God's love ought to, to play out in, in our lives and, and how we live. And, and that's really what Paul is writing in, in, verse, in chapters really 5 through 8 and, and getting into sort of the ethical implications of our status as children of God through the gospel. And, and last week we, we saw that even trials cannot interrupt this blessed assurance. And today, what we will see that even our, our, our uh, position as, as sinners, as enemies, couldn't interrupt this, couldn't thwart what God was doing. And I want us to walk out here again today, understanding the gospel better, but, but appropriating that and really living in the overflow of that. We, we said it last week, most of the issues that we deal with in our lives, most of the issues that we're facing as believers, I would argue they're gospel issues. Failure to understand, failure to appropriate the gospel. And, and Paul, again, he is writing, digging into the gospel so that, so that these believers in Rome would not suffer that same... Um, experience and, and 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 that's why we're preaching through Romans. We we need to dig deeper into the gospel. We need to better understand the gospel. And so Paul writes here to help us with that. And again, the main point in verses 6 to 11, you see it there on your handout. Our hope is secure and assured because it is grounded in God's love for us first and foremost. And we're going to dig into that and unpack that a little bit, but, but understand the assurance of, God's, of, of our status and of God's love is based on His character. It's based on who He is. It's not based on our worth. It's not, it's not like God saw something in us that, that, that He needed, that He lacked, or that was valuable and saved us. No, our assurance is not based on our work. It's grounded in the character of, of God, and, and that's what Paul is, is writing at here. It's grounded again in the gospel, and Paul is substantiating here the utter dependability of our hope that he began to address again in verses 1 through 5 when he talked about that not even trials could, could interrupt that, and, and he's building on that here. And so, again, understand assured hope, blessed assurance. And so, you see there on your handout as we unpack this, number one there. In verses 6 through 7, here's what Paul is saying. We can be assured of God's love for us because God's love for us is unlike, the word there is unlike, anything we have or ever will experience in this world. Look, look, at, look at verses 6 through 7 that Christy read. 
For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Here's, here's, here's the challenge that you and I face. We tend to think that God is like us. We tend to think that God loves like us, that God likes what we like, that He thinks like us, that, that He loves what we love, that He loves how we love, and this has devastating effects on our assurance. And what Paul shows us here and what he's getting at is that God's love is very different from how we tend to naturally love others. Your, yours and our, your, my tendency, your tendency, and how we tend to love others, the way that God loves is vastly different. And, and we, must, we must grasp that before we will ever begin to rightly grasp the gospel. We, we have to start seeing God's love as it is, that it's totally unlike anything that we've ever seen or, or, or experienced in this world. If we're ever going to rightly grasp the assurance of God's love, we've got to understand that it, that it is unlike anything else. And, and this is really what John says in 1 John 3.1. He says, See how great a love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That, that word there, see how great a love, it's, it literally reads, see with what foreign kind of love the Father has lavished upon us. God's love, God's love is foreign to us. As such, it can be confusing to us. And, and, and what again, what hinders us sometimes from really grasping the assurance that God offers us in the gospel is because we tend to think that God loves like we love. And the problem with that is every single person in here has been hurt, disappointed. Our lives live with the scars. We live with the scars of the lack of assurance that human love offers. And we tend to project that upon God. We tend to think that, he, again, He loves like we love. And if we're honest, our human love in and of ourselves, it lacks assurance. And our lives, again, our lives bear those marks. And so that is really what Paul is, is writing here in verses 6 and 7, that, that this, the way that God loves is foreign. It's unlike anything else that we've seen. And look at, again, in verse 6 and 7, he says, you see it as A on your handout there, God's love is unlike anything we know in that God's love for us was planned rather than it being based on convenience. It was planned. And again, what Paul is, is, is emphasizing here and reminding us is that the atonement was not an afterthought. The sacrifice of Christ was not an afterthought. The gospel was not an afterthought. This is the way God intended to deal with sin. He dealt with sin because He chose to do so. And in the grand scheme of the ages, Christ's death was right on schedule. And you see this as well in Galatians 4, chapter 4, it says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, at the perfect time. And Paul writes, to, and he's saying, personalize this. 
Even here in, chat, in verse 6, he says, while we were still helpless, he, at the right time, at that point in time, we had no hope. We would have been doomed in our sin had God not sent the Savior. And, and what Paul is saying here is that you and I have to come to the end of, of trusting ourselves. We've got to come to the end of, of trusting our works, of, of thinking that, that there was something about us that warranted God saving us. We, we've got to see our helpless condition. We've got to see our condition for what it truly was. Spurgeon said this, You've got to stand before God, convicted and condemned, done with, so that you will weep for joy when God at the right time sends Christ into your life as Savior. You, you've got to rid yourself of all that self-righteousness, all that thought of you know, that you were worthy, that you warranted it, that you merited it, all that stuff that fights with you truly grasping the gospel. Paul is saying you, you've got to understand that you were helpless. Helpless. And yet God loved you enough to send his son to die that whosoever would call upon in the name of the Lord could be reconciled. And not only was Christ crucified at the perfect time in history as God designed it, but it was also as God's wrath was being poured out against all ungodliness. We saw this in chapter 1 of Romans verse 18. For the wrath of God is currently being revealed against all what? Ungodliness and against men and women who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Both of these speak to God's perf His perfectness, His perfection. That it, that it was planned. It wasn't built on convenience. It wasn't, it wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. It wasn't like he had gotten to the end and exhausted all other means. This was a planned out gospel. But, but God's love is also unlike anything we know in letter B there. In that God's love was, a, was for those who were undeserving of that love. You, you and I, t again, you and I tend... To, to, to love based on convenience. We, we tend to, to love based on, you know, is it, is it convenient? Is it easy? Do I have time? Interestingly, a proverb says, if anyone asks you of anything and it is, it is within your power to do it, you know what the proverb says? Do it. Do it. Why? Because that's how God loves. But, but God also loves in that we were undeserving. And again, this is Paul's point Again, in verses 6 and 7, we were alienated from God due to our sin. We had no right to make any claim on God and His love, and yet, He loved us. We deserved wrath, we deserved condemnation, and yet God offered forgiveness. He offered love. And, and again, what Paul write, he writes here is, is he's exposing the uniqueness of God's love here, especially in verse 7. We tend to love those who, who deserve it, who warrant it, who, whom it would be expected of us. That, that's what Paul is getting at in verse 7. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die that's, who, that's what our reasoning, that's what our wisdom would say. You know, a spouse, 
a child, a family member, a best friend. It would make perfect sense that you would love them. Perfect sense. And, but, yet, but yet, even there, if we're honest, our love even there is imperfect. Our love even there to spouse, to friend. Listen, in our lives in here, mark the, mark the scars of that, the, the reality of that, that even there, our love is imperfect. But not so with God. And Paul is writing that we would understand that his love is unique. It's different. And in the world which Paul wrote, understand this, it was unthinkable, unthinkable for, for someone to die for someone's enemies. Within the Jewish context, they had many Proverbs, many extra-biblical writings that commanded a love for one's family and, and one's friends. But for their enemies, there were many writings that stated it was actually worthy of the wrath of God for you to do something kind for enemies. And I'll read this. Listen to what one Jewish writer wrote. This, this was their theology, if you will, the theology in which Christ entered and, and, and interrupted, if you will. Give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. Hold back their bread and do not give it to them, for by means of it they might subdue you. Then you will receive twice as much evil for all the good you have done to them. For the Most High also hates sinners and will inflict punishment on the ungodly. Give to the one who is good, but do not help the sinner. That was the theology in which, in which Christianity countered. That's the theology in, in, in which the death of Jesus countered. Because that's how humans love. And we tend to reject that upon God. Surely God doesn't love the sinner. Surely if I love that person, surely God loves that person. If I don't love that person, surely God doesn't love that person either. And the challenge for us is we don't see ourselves as undeserving. The challenge is, is we don't tend to see ourselves as truly being sinners. And what Paul is writing is that God's love is unlike anything that we know. And, 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 and in, as well as not only does our love tend to breed uncertainty, God's love, when you really dig down into it, breeds certainty. And you see it on your hand out there. Before we will ever appreciate God's love for us, we must appreciate our own sinfulness first. And, and we've looked at this before, but it, but it bears revisiting Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he, Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Listen, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. All right, stop right there for a second. What, what is that Pharisee saying that he's not a sinner? You see the point? Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. 
a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. For though those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man that he even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. What's the point? The, the point is this, you and I don't, we don't like to realize this, but every single person in here tends to be more like Simon than we do that sinner. Every single person in here has a propensity to be more like that, sin, that Pharisee than the sinner. And before we can ever really experience the grace of God, before we can ever really grasp and appreciate the gospel, before we'll ever really appreciate not only the gospel, but before we'll ever love others the way that God has commanded us, we've got to see ourselves as sinners first and foremost. As long as we see ourselves like Simon saw himself, look, look at what Jesus says. For she was forgiven, the, the degree to which she saw her forgiveness was what? The degree to which she loved the Savior. The, the question for all of us is this. Do we see ourselves as a 500 denarii debtor or a 50 denarii debtor? That's the challenge. And most of us... We know what the Sunday school answer is, but deep down in our hearts, we see ourselves as a 50 denarii sinner. Everybody else is the 500 denarii. Martin Luther, the reality is that before you'll ever know and experience God's love for us in Christ, you have to see the depth of your sin that resides in your own heart. Martin Lord joins uh, in, in one of his, uh, in a book he wrote called Assurance, said this. It is to the extent to which we realize our inability and incapacity that we realize the love of God. Until we, until we grasp the depth of our sinfulness, we won't appreciate the gospel. And we won't really love others the way that we're called to love each other. Why? Because deep down we think we deserve it. And deep down we think that they don't. And you see it on your handout. This is Paul's point in showing the uniqueness of God's love. Not that we would feel worthy, but that we would feel assured of it because it is not based upon our worth. That's the reality. The reality is that God's love is showered on us in spite of us. Not because of us. It's undeserved. And that's what Paul is highlighting here in verses 6 and 7 is the uniqueness, the, the otherworldliness, the, the, the foreignness of God's love. He's contrasting it to human love. 
Why? So that we would feel assured of it. And that's what he gets into in verse 8. He's building an argument here. Why can we feel assured of it? Because this, we can be assured of God's love, number two, because God's love is far greater than anything we have or ever will experience in this world. In contrast to the very best of human loves, God's love is greater. And that's what he gets at. Look at verse 8. In contrast to, to a, a few persons who might die for a righteous man and, and, and others who would die for a good man, look at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What, what we must grasp, you see it on your hand out there, is that God's love for us flows from the character of God rather based on being on our rather than being based on our character. And Paul, look at the, what I want us to walk through this morning to see this. It may not be good for our, our worldly self-esteem, which, who cares? It's good for us understanding the gospel. Look at the, look at the, look at the adjectives that Paul uses here to describe who God is saving. All right, look at verse 6. While we were still helpless, God, you see it A there. God crucified Christ for us as a substitute while we were helpless. L listen to what this word helpless means. Incapable of working out any righteousness for ourselves. Another definition. Total incapacity for good, the want of our moral life such as is healthy and fruitful in good works. Another definition is this. Total inability in a spiritual sense. And, and listen, we've already seen it in Romans 3, 10 through 19. There is none righteous, no, not one. None who even does good. Your mouths are open graves, he says. But go to Ephesians 2. While we were dead in our trespasses, guess what God did? Sent forth his son. Dead in our trespasses. Spiritually dead. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the hearts and the minds of the unbelieving. Spiritually blind. 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, In our natural state, we do not appraise the gospel. We do not value the gospel. All over Scripture, helpless. And, and you see it there on your handout, what Paul means here when he says we were, while we were helpless is that we were totally unable, but not only unable, but unwilling to do anything about our own reconciliation. It's not that just we were unable, we were unwilling. Apart from the miraculous work of God. Unable and unwilling. But, look, but, 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 but Paul goes on in verse 6 to say, Christ died for the, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not only were we helpless, be there is ungodly. God crucified Christ for us as a substitute while we were ungodly. Th that word reminds us, it ought to remind us of Romans 1.18 where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, what, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Here's what that word means. Here's what Paul is getting at. And it's there on your handout. That you and I are completely unlike God. Completely unlike God, our nature. Contrary. We lack righteousness. Ungodly. There's nothing, listen, there was nothing in us 
that prompted God to save us. This wasn't like me dying for my wife or my kids. You, you would say, if I did not do that, you would say I was, I was irresponsible as a father. That's not what we're talking about here. God, God is crucifying His Son for the helpless, for the, for the ungodly. But look at verse 8. God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were sinners, God crucified Christ as a substitute while we were sinners. By the way, that's everybody. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Understand, understand who we were outside of the gospel. If we're ever going to appreciate the gospel, we've got to understand who we were apart from the gospel. And, and what Paul means here, and we saw that again in verses 3.23 of Romans, what Paul means here when he says that as we're sinners is that we do not live for His glory. We lack glory of God. We had no concern for God's glory. And to the contrary, we had only concern for our own glory. But, but it goes on. Look at verse 10. For if we were enemies, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved in His life. Not only were we helpless, not only were we ungodly, not only were we sinners, now Paul in verse 10 says we were enemies. Enemies of God. L listen to Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. Because the mind set on the flesh, listen to this, is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Grasp that apart from the gospel. Enemies. Enemies. What Paul is saying here, and you see it on your handout, is that when he says we were enemies, he is saying there is, a, there is a hostility between us and God. A hostility. And it goes both ways. It goes both ways. You towards God and God towards you. There's hostility. It's not a one-way street. And if, you, and if you want to diminish that, if you want to say, Chris, that's not right, go read Psalm 5. It says, God hates all who do iniquity. If you think that's too strong, he goes on, he says, he abhors all who run to bloodshed. Hostility. This, this is, it's not a fun picture to paint of yourselves, but we will never appreciate the gospel. We will never appreciate the love of God until we see ourselves as God saw us outside of the gospel first. If we, don't, if we do not see ourselves as, 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 as having had a, an, an insurmountable debt towards God, we'll never grasp the gospel rightly. We'll never love others rightly. This is not based on our worth. The gospel is not based on our, on our value at its foundation. It is based upon the character of of God. That's why we can live with assurance. The character of God. Because James 1 says in God there is no variation or variation or shifting of shadows. That every good and perfect gift flows from Him. 
God's not moody. He's not, he doesn't change his mind. He's not fickle. All of those describe human love. Why? Because it's based on worth. It's based on value. It's based on what you can do for me. Listen, God's love was based on his character. Even while we were enemies, even while we were helpless, even while we were sinners, even while we were ungodly, God crucified His Son. Do you see how Paul is making sure we understand that God's love is it's unlike anything we've ever experienced? And again, look at verse 8. But God demonstrates. You see this on your handout. The cross is God's demonstration that His love is greater than anything we know. God is demonstrating that, that His love is greater. His love is greater, and you see it there on your handout. It's greater in magnitude. That's why the Bible says, see how great a love the, love the Father has lavished upon us. But it's also greater in dependability. Dependability. Paul is writing that, again, I, even in 1 John, the writer, there, he writes, I write these things that you will know, that you will know that you're children. And only as we dig into the gospel deeper, only as we cl draw closer to God, only as we really, not only draw closer to God, but only as we really recognize the depth of our own sinfulness, will we ever really, really cherish the gospel. Will, will, they ever, will these things ever become more than just mere cold, if you will, doctrinal truths, but that we would appropriate that God loved me while I was a sinner? Not just that He loved the world, that He loved me. I was the sinner. I was the enemy. I was the hater of God. And yet, God demonstrated His love for us that while I was all of that and more, Christ died. Paid the propitiation, paid the penalty, paid the payment of my sin. Draw near and embrace that. That Again, God's love is unique. It's unlike anything that we've, that we've ever fathomed, that we'll ever see on this earth. And it's far greater than than anything, but, but not only that, look at verses 9 through 11. Paul says again, we can be assured of God's love for us because God is the one who took the initiative to make a way for us to be reconciled even when we didn't deserve it. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. This is the whole logic here. We did nothing to earn it, nothing to merit it. We didn't want it. We didn't pay the price for it. It was all grace, all substitutionary. And again, why can we be assured of it? Because of all that. Because, because no matter what, in spite of us, God loved. And, and that's whole, Paul's whole point. If God did the harder thing, listen, if God did the harder thing, crucifying His Son, paying the penalty of our sins, 
will he not also do the easier thing of making sure you enter into glory? That's what he's saying here. Why can we be assured? Because God did the harder thing. And, and again, all illustrations fall short, and I, I thought about this one, and not to be silly, but imagine walking into a car dealership with cash, putting the cash on the table, paying cash for the car, and then going home without the car. You say, that would be dumb. That would be foolish. Listen, the harder thing is paying for the car, right? The easy thing is enjoying the car. It'd be unfathomable. That's what Paul is writing. If God loved you while you were an enemy, if God offered his love to you while you were a hater of him, by grace you received that and you applied that to your life, do you not think God's going to do the easier thing and bring you into glory? Do you think God's not going to do the easier thing and protect you as a child? That's the point. But, but again, why do we struggle with that so much? Because deep down, we've got to deal with the fact that we think we earned it, we think we merited it, we think we deserved it, we think we had a part in it, and that breeds uncertainty. Because we will not let that go. And our flesh fights against that. We've got to let go of the idea that we were worthy of being saved. That we did something to warrant God saving us. Because anything short of that, I mean, it's a, again, a silly illustration, but imagine, imagine for a second, imagine if Karen married me for my hair. What? Yeah, right. You know, when we started dating, I had good hair. Imagine, imagine. Think about the uncertainty that that would bring me today. Right? Until we grasp the gospel... And all of our lives bear the markings that we're, that we're struggling to let that go, to really grasp the gospel, that we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, we didn't merit it. And listen, I'm telling you as, as lovingly but as strongly as I can tell you, that's why we struggle with the certainty of the gospel, because we think we deserved it or merited it or, or did something to warrant it. And until we let that go, until we really realize as what it says in Matthew 18 that you and I had a debt we could never pay. We won't live in the joy of the assurance of God's love, the certainty of God's love. And again, God has done the hard thing. He's forgiven you of your sin. He has propitiated. He's fully paid, fully satisfied the penalty. He's going to do the easier thing, protect you and carry you into eternity. As he says here, protect you, save you. We shall be saved. He has currently saved you. Much more, we will be saved from the wrath of God. When you stand before God one day, the wrath of God will not fall on you, believer. Why? Because it fell on Christ as a substitute. That's what he's saying. And Christianity is living every single day with that hope. 
living every single day with that certainty. That I am loved, I am cherished, I am protected by the power of God. 1 Peter 1.5 That no matter what, it, listen, when I stand before God, I will be saved from the wrath of God. Why? Because Jesus Christ took the wrath for me. And again, it's going back to that status, and you see it in a handout. Again, our status as believers, as children of God, is not based upon our effort, but the certainty and satisfactory nature of Christ's offering of himself as a substitute. Therefore, we can live with assurance that God loves us. Go back to who Christ, God crucified Christ for, his enemies. Look at the cost at which God redeemed us, his son's death. Think about it. Do you really think that you can do anything to overcome or cancel that? Do, do you really think you can do anything to help that out? I mean, do you think you can do anything to warrant that, to deserve God dying? Think, think about the arrogance of that, that you really think you can just do something to deserve God dying. And yet, and yet, God did die. So that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. Transferred from hostility to child. Transferred from enemy to beloved. Transferred from ungodly to the kingdom of godliness, of righteousness. I mean, our hope, you see it there in your handout, is secure because it is not based on anything good in us, but rather in the grace of God. I mean, that's the essence, that's the essence of adoption. That's the privilege of sonship. I, even as I was praying through this and writing this, I was reminded of, of, of all the children here that have been adopted. Imagine, 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 Stewards, what would you feel like if Sawyer grew up not feeling assured of your love for him? I mean, that's the very thing that you want him to be assured of. You didn't pick him because of anything about him. You, you picked him because of the gospel. You picked him out of grace. You didn't go over there and say, hey, I want all you kids to line up in a room. I want you to perform for me. And I want to I want to I want to do a I want to do a, a ancestry.com and I want to see who's going to be the best future child and then I'm going to pick that one. No, no, you picked him. And there's certainty there. There's assurance there. He bears the name Stuart. Listen, he is a co-equal with Sloan, with Tia, with Landon, with Annika, just like that, he became co-equal, co-heirs. Just like that. Fully assured of everything that those other four kids are fully assured of. Not based on anything about Sawyer. Based on the character of those two people right there. And the work of God in them.
And, and this is, be assured. See, see the uniqueness of this gospel. Listen to Hebrews 7. 7 verse 25. Therefore, talks, it's talking about the sacrifice of Christ. It says, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Think about that. What is Christ doing right now on your behalf, interceding on your behalf? Forever. I mean, do you, do you really think that you earned that or merited that or can help that out? No, no matter what anyone says, listen, Lee and Kelly will stand up and say, that's my son. That's all that needs to be said, right? That's my son. That, that, and it's argument's over. That's the assurance. In a very real way, as parents, we intercede daily on behalf of our children. Yet we have a heavenly Father who intercedes every day on our behalf. Why? To keep us, that we would be assured of His love in spite of us. That, that from start to finish, you and I can be assured of the love of God. Why? Because it is God-centered love, and therefore we can rest assured. Why? Because God doesn't change. Nothing can prevent God from protecting or keeping you. That's what Paul writes in verse 11. Therefore, we exult. The only, the only appropriate response is to be amazed. It's to exult. And again, that's the same word up here, exulting in, in tribulations. We exult in amazement at the idea that God would save us, forgive us. That's why Paul later on in, verse, in chapters 9 and 10, he'll say, those who hope in Christ, what? Will not be disappointed. Why? Because we can be assured that God will love us to the end. He'll protect us and keep us. That's why he'll say at the end of Romans 8, I'm convinced of this, that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not, not death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. Oh, by the way, nor any other created thing. That's why he says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up freely for us all, how will he, how will he not also freely give us all things? He's saying the same thing. If God did the hard thing, He's going to do the easy thing. Be assured. So, so a point of application. How do, we, how do we bring this home? And what does this mean for us? Because the worst thing for us to do would just be walk out and just, it just be a, I, these are not just for head truths. These are transformational truths. Number one, live for the glory of God. That's what verse 11 is saying. But not only this, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Exult in God. Live for the glory of the one who has forgiven you, who has saved you. Secondly, practically speaking here, forgive others in the same way that you've been forgiven. This is Matthew 18. And, he, and interestingly enough, it, this is a big deal. The, the, the degree to which we forgive others. I, I won't read that whole section, but Matthew 18, listen to what he says. My heavenly Father, verse 35, will also do the same to you 
wait, hold on. The degree to which you forgive others is the degree to which my heavenly Father will do to you. Why? He's saying you don't really grasp your own forgiveness. This is a big deal. Believers not forgiving one another, listen, you're really saying you don't understand your own forgiveness. You're, you're saying, I deserve to be forgiven, but this other person doesn't forgive, deserve to be forgiven. I'll take forgiveness, but I won't... doesn't make sense. It shows, again, like we said earlier, you don't really understand the gospel. But not only forgive others, love others. Love others in the same way that you've been loved. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. This is how the whole world will what? Know that you're my disciples how you love one another. By understanding how God has loved us, and you know what he says? By the power of the Holy Spirit, go love one another. Lastly, live lives full of grace. Be gracious with ourselves, gracious with one another, never moving beyond the gospel. Never, never getting tired of exulting in the gospel. Never, never getting tired of going deeper in the gospel, understanding greater how much God has loved us. Taking this glorious gospel outside of these walls to our neighbors and co-workers and friends and offering, the same, offering them the same grace that you've been forgiven. 